0: Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 7, and we'll look at the first six verses of chapter 7. Now, we covered those verses last week, but I'm reading them as sort of a preparation for, the next, for this Sunday and next Sunday to talk about the twin heresies, the non-identical twins in the womb Of uh, antinomianism and legalism. Today we will be looking at legalism. One thing I've discovered about preaching on legalism and talking to people about legalism is nobody wants to admit they're a legalist. Nobody. I've never heard anybody say, well, yeah, Pastor Tim, I'm a legalist. Please help me. What I generally get from my own legalism and everyone else's legalism is I want to defend myself. I want to prove to you that I'm right. Because nothing feels quite as exhilarating as, and good as being right, doesn't it? But uh, legalism is a, a nasty thing. And it's rife in our churches. It's rife in our own hearts. And so I think as we enter into this message... One of the things that legalists often do is they hear a sermon for somebody else, but not for themselves. Have you ever been to a a sermon or a a church in which a a preacher uh, was preaching a sermon, and you looked over at your wife and you said, I hope she's hearing this. I hope she's listening well. And the trouble is, more than likely, you were the one that needed to hear it more than she did. And so let me ask you to do that as we give consideration to one of the most subtle sins. It's kind of like a uh, bad breath. You're the last one to know you have it. But everybody else does. That it's, it's the halitosis of the soul that is legalism. All right. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beginning in Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law She's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you who have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. In other words, Paul tells us that we are no longer under the law as a covenant of works, a way in which to try to earn God's pleasure and favor and approval. And by the way, earning grace is an oxymoron. You do know that, right? Grace is undeserved. (laughs) It's pure gift. And so we are no longer under the law, but we're married to Christ. And the law becomes for us a rule of life, a guide to holiness. The simplest definition I can give you of that is that the law tells us and spells out for us what loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves looks like. That's what the law does. So with that said, let's bow for prayer. Father, we do ask today that you will graciously show us in your word truth that is liberating for us, that will give us a life of joy. Uh, Paul asked the Galatian church, where is all your joy? And somehow uh, it is escapable from us so easily, so quickly And so, Lord, I pray today that we get our joy back as we understand how to relate to you and your will for our lives. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tertullian, the church father, and this is in the front of your bulletin, it's the quote area, said that there are two thieves of the gospel. Tertullian said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Tertullian meant that there were two basic false ways of thinking, each of which steals the power and joy and distinctiveness of the gospel from us by pulling us off the gospel line. We get out of alignment with the gospel. To one side or the other. These two errors are very powerful because they represent the natural tendency of the human heart and mind. These thieves can be called moralism or legalism on the one hand and or relativism and antinomianism on the other hand. So today we'll talk about legalism and we'll talk about it in three ways. If you look at the outline we're going to talk about the roots of it. What is the root of legalism. And by the way, Ron Warren said a lot in Sunday school of what I'm also going to say from the pulpit. But as Christian told me a minute ago, we need to hear this every day, not just once, twice. Uh, The roots of legalism, that is also what legalism looks like in an individual's life. And finally, the only antidote to legalism, the cure for legalism. And at this point, a definition of legalism might be appropriate, so I'm going to do that first. Legalism could be defined as any attempt to rely on self-effort either to attain a relationship with God or to maintain a relationship with God. So legalism is born of self-effort. It is an attempt to rely on the efforts I make either to attain a relationship with God, that would be works righteousness. That's an attempt to put God in debt to me, to live in such a way that I build up credit with God. He now owes me a good life. He owes me a happy life. He owes me heaven when I die. Many people are born with this woven into our nature, and it's this. We think at the end of time or end of our life when we die, we'll go before God, and there's a balance, a scales that God has on the judgment seat. And he will weigh our good efforts to be good people against our failures and our bad efforts to be uh, good people And we believe and hope that our good will outweigh our bad and that's damnable that's what that is that's heretical it's wrong it's unbiblical it's not true it's a lie what God requires to enter heaven is absolute perfection total inside out absolute perfection none of us have that how do we get it the only way you'll ever get it is repent of your attempts to get it on your own, and trust in Jesus who has accomplished for you what you could never accomplish for yourself. And that is justification, a validation from God that because you are united to Christ by faith, you are forever righteous and under his favor. And so legalism, the deadly, soul-damning kind of legalism, is the one that drives us to negotiate a relationship with God through our own self effort and relying on that to count in the equation of being right with God. But there's a second kind of legalism. And it's called using the law to maintain a relationship with God. To maintain a relationship with God. And that heresy is alive and well in our churches. Um, So legalism can be defined as any attempt to rely on self-effort either to attain or maintain our justification before God. It can be attempted either through following religious laws or following our own autonomous self-prescribed laws. Boiled down to its essence, legalism always seems to have one thing in common. Its theology denies that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. It always adds some additional element on our part, such as self-effort, covenant faithfulness, or merit as being necessary. There is a heresy called the Federal Vision that's uh, happening in Reformed circles in some parts of the church. Not much in the PCA, but in some other denominations, it's rank and it's rife. And covenant faithfulness means you get in by grace, but you stay in... By obedience and keeping the law and that is heresy that is totally out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ it is wrong run from it and repent of it could I be any more adamant no (laughs) I hate that doctrine because it's not biblical for example, anyone who teaches that a Christian can lose his or her salvation is in essence denying the sufficiency of Christ to save to the uttermost. They believe their sin is greater than Christ's grace, but Christ's righteousness is not only efficient for our salvation, but sufficient as well. His once-for-all sacrifice put away sin for all time and those he has united to himself. His salvation also means that he not only saves us at the beginning but preserves us unto the end, sealing us in his perfect righteousness. Any attempt to add our covenant faithfulness as part of the price of redemption is is an attempt to attain our goal by human effort and thus is a complete misunderstanding of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must, with Paul, reject any and all attempts to attain or maintain a status before God based on any actions on our part. Salvation is of the Lord. Hallelujah. But legalism is subtle, and it's nuanced, and it's multidimensional. And it can creep back into our lives in ways that we're totally unaware of. We can be so deceived about legalistic, uh, being legalistic or being a legalist that because it feels and seems so right. It seems so plausible to us. It seems so well-intentioned. But it's deadly. It will suck the joy out of your life if you're in bondage to this thing called legalism. And it's dangerous. And it sends the wrong message to everyone we interact with or know. About 25 years ago, I did something that I have not done since. I was listening to a preacher who I really respect and enjoy. And he was preaching on marriage. And he said, husbands, have you ever gone to your wife and asked her the question, what would you change in me if you could, you know, please tell me, What it is, if you had something you could change about me, what would it be? So like a knucklehead, (laughs) I went home, and I found my beloved, beautiful, adoring wife, and I pulled her aside, and I'd already anticipated what she would probably say. You know, I'd already said, well, she'd say, well, you know, you could watch what you eat a little better. You could exercise more. You could be a little less selfish. Uh, You cannot be so defensive or something like that. But when I asked this woman who was married to me, what would you change? She said, it's your self-righteousness. She said, I can hardly bear it. She said, it suffocates our relationship. And I I thought to myself, I didn't say a word because I was in total shock. I was the last one to know. But I remember looking at her and thinking, how long have you been sitting on that? It must be a long time. And she did not, she delivered it as sweetly and gently and lovingly as it could possibly be delivered. I wanted to go outside and look at my address to make sure I was in the right house talking to the right woman because I did not see that in myself. But she saw it, she lived with it, and she knew it was real. And that was what caused one of the major turnarounds in my life, in my ministry. And so, gentlemen, think about it. But that was the most helpful thing she could have ever said to me. She could have extolled my virtues and puffed me up. But instead, she went for the juggler. And the juggler is necessary sometimes. Because she said, it, it's, it's just so inimical to what you preach. You preach grace with such passion. She said, but there, there is a legal spirit about you. Now, my wife grew up in a very fundamentalist church. Very fundamentalist. Took all the fun and all the mental out of Christianity. That's the kind of church she grew up in. And it had all kinds of rules for how you were supposed to live. How you were to dress. How you were to rear your children. And I mean detailed Talmuds. You know what a Talmud is, a commentary on the Old Testament, giving you laws in addition to the law to help you live holy lives. And the church she went to and and that I went to had all kinds of bands on all kinds of things in order that you could be holy. And all they were doing was feeding the flesh that Jesus wants to kill in us. And that's pride and control and power. But she was further down the road than I was because she got out of that church, got away from that stuff, got into a good church, the one I was past. No. But, <laughs> but she knew it. She knew it when she saw it. She s- s- could see what it was doing, what it was doing to my children, what it was doing to the church, what it was doing to everyone else. But I was the last to know. And that's why I call legalism the halitosis of the soul. It's bad breath, and it stinks, and it's really hard to be around. And so that was extremely helpful to me. But let's look at some of the nuances that legalism can possess. And one of the first things that I want to talk about in your outline is what are the roots of legalism. Um, And Sinclair Ferguson has written a book called The Whole Christ, which in my judgment is the best thing anybody's ever written on the subject of both legalism and antinomianism, and I have read that. And so he uh, told us that both legalism and antinomianism are the same. My guess is that most readers will find this the best new insight for them, one that could even trigger a proverbial paradigm shift. It is a fatal pastoral mistake to think of legalism and antinomianism as complete opposites. Ferguson says that rather they are non-identical twins from the same womb. He traces both of them back to the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden, namely that you can't trust the goodness of God or his commitment to our joy and happiness and well-being, and that therefore if we obey God fully— we will miss out and be miserable. Miserable. And so that sounds like the antinomian side, but the legal side is a basic suspicion and distrust in our hearts toward God. That God is not really good. That God doesn't really intend to do us good. That there's something in the nature of God that demands from us our best to negotiate a relationship with him in which we can grow and, and soar as, and flourish as uh, creatures in his image. Because both mindsets refuse to believe in the love and graciousness of God, they assume any commands given to us are evidence that he is really unwilling to bless us. They both fail to see obedience as the way to give the gracious God delight, as well as the way to become one true self, the people we were created to be, to participate in the same in comprehension of that joy of obedience. They see obedience as something imposed on us by God whose love is conditional God's love is conditional toward us they think and who is unwilling to give us blessing unless we do quite a lot of work the only difference is that the legalist assumes the burden while the antinomian refuses it and casts it off by insisting that God is not really loving. He wouldn't ask for it. In order to salvage an idea of a gracious God, antinomians find ways to argue that God doesn't really require obedience. And so you can see how closely related that they are. Uh, And so the main problem is... A distrust of the nature of God, which leads to a certain kind of lifestyle. And so what are some of the nuances of legalism? Well, we'll get into them, but the first one I want to talk about is the one the wife, my wife, pointed out in me, and it's called a self-righteous temper. This comes from Ferguson, a self- Righteous temper. Now when he uses the word temper he's not talking about rage or anger or completely losing your mind and everything else. What he's talking about is a disposition like a temperament. I remember from church planting testing that we had to discover what our basic temperament type was. And there were four options. Choleric, sanguine, uh, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And that's, that's early Greek thought and that everybody has one of those as a dominant and some of the others as a minor. And so we tended to act or could be expected to act and respond according to our temperament. That's partially true, not totally true, but it ha- does have truth in it. And so there's something called a legal temper, a legal spirit that people have. While they not, may not be uh, engaging, as it were, in overt legalism, It produces what our forefathers called a self-righteous temper. And of course, it can do that in a limited modern sense uh, of the word temper as temperament. Temper can be controlled, at least to an extent. Temperament, however, cannot be hidden. It is like the breath of a smoker or the scent of a pleasing perfume. It discloses itself in a variety of ways, some more subtle than others. Think of the Pharisees in Jesus's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You might want to open your Bibles really quickly to Luke chapter 18. And if you want to go back there I'm just going to read the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee both in the temple. And in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, pay very close attention to to the ones whom Jesus told this parable to. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. By the way, those two always go together. Self-righteousness. And contempt for other people is, is a united duo. One is the fruit of the other. There's a contempt for other people. We'll see it come out. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, God, make an atonement, make a propitiation for me, the sinner. I tell you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the Pharisee at that particular time was regarded as a member of a holiness movement. And uh, the word Pharisee itself means to be separated, as the word holiness does, to be separated to God. And they were very conservative, Bible-believing, that is Old Testament-believing people who were quite serious about the faith who longed to live obedient to the law because they were under the law as a covenant of works. They understood that in order to be justified, they had to reach a level. The whole problem was Jesus came along and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no place in heaven. And so that sort of undid everyone that project of self-justification that they were engaged in but they were quite serious they were very conservative i'm sure they would have voted republican i'm absolutely sure that they would have been the kind of people you would have been comfortable being around because they knew the scriptures they were they uh, gave off this great appearance and projection of holiness and righteousness and yet jesus said it's this filthy tax collector who goes home justified How can that be? How can that possibly be? The punchline I'll give to you now, that's because the Pharisee was self-righteous, and the tax collector looked for his righteousness somewhere else, ultimately in Jesus. But listen to how this Pharisee prays, and think about it with me for a moment. The Pharisees lived according to the strictest party of uh, religion in that time. The name itself uh, derived from the root to separate. Pharisees were essentially a conservative holiness movement. So the Pharisee was a man deeply exercised about personal and religious holiness and the details of life. Indeed, the Pharisee, Jesus pictures praying in the temple, went beyond the specific requirements of the law. Listen to his his prayer. He thinks of himself as not like other men. By definition, he is, after all, a Pharisee. He's a Ten Commandments man. He alludes to at least three of the Ten Commandments. He's able to compare himself favorably with others. He does so specifically uh, by comparing himself with a tax collector who entered the temple simultaneously. He was a man punctilious in his disciplines. He fasted twice a week. The law included more feasts than fast and required fasting only once a year on the Day of Atonement. He was a self-sacrificing man. He tithed everything. The law required tithing of only crops, fruit, and animals. Apparently, the Pharisees' tithing extended uh, beyond income, even into uh, his possessions. And So here he is, parading himself before the face of God and others as a righteous person. He has no sense of sin. He has no need of repentance. He's a Pharisee, and so are you, and so am I. We're Pharisees, and we look at others with contempt. We look at others with judgment. We don't know a thing in the world about repentance. We don't know a thing in the world about seeing ourselves as we really are. The Pharisee was characterized by a big fat face of smugness. You ever been around a smug person? Have you ever been a smug person? Smugness is ugly, and it's antisocial. And so I tell people all the time that I'm a recovering Pharisee. I go to meetings, 12-step meetings every week. No. I go to meetings with the Lord every day in the Bible because I'm a recovering Pharisee. And the Pharisee was driven by self-righteousness. But let's look at the other guy. Luke tells us that Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But Jesus himself did not tell his original hearers this. Instead, we are given the impression that his hearers were probably led along by Pharisees' hint that he was not like this tax collector. Surely the Pharisee was God's man, the righteous one the one who could uh, leave the temple assured that he was justified before God. It could never be the miserable tax collector, could it? For apart from being a tax collector and therefore by definition associated with sinners, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, which uh, is expected as a prayer posture and etiquette in that time. He beat his breast in the light of his obvious sinfulness. He cried out to God to be merciful, literally be propitiated to him. Since no sacrifice was prescribed for his high-handed transgressions, he acknowledged he was a sinner. There was surely only one answer to Jesus' implied question. So, which of these two men went home from the temple, worshipped that day, justified, righteous in the sight of the holy God of heaven? We're kind of over-familiar with this passage because we don't catch the scandal of it. But when those words came out of the mouth of Jesus, you better bet believe scandal ensued. Teachings like this ultimately led to his crucifixion. Because it was religious people, self-righteous people, who crucified him. And Jesus hated that. So, we think we know the right answer, but here we don't. It was the tax collector. How can contemporary Christians recapture the sense of shock at hearing Jesus' conclusion? In one sense, the answer is simple. It should shock us, because evangelical Christians may existentially have more in common with the Pharisee than with the tax collector. Those into whose temperaments justification by grace has fully permeated. Do not look down on another person, including another Christian. The instinct to do so is one of the most obvious telltale signs of a heart from which legalism has not yet been fully or finally banished. For it implies that we have merited grace more than someone else. Do not assume that there is anything in our devotion to the Lord that is the reason for God's acceptance of us, rather than of somebody else who lacks it. Do not assume it's on the grounds of a decision we made, or for that matter, our years of commitment to Christ, that we are accepted for God. Do not despise and treat with contempt in Luke's expression an embarrassing breach of etiquette or an outward show of sorrow in another person. So tell me, when was the last time you beat your breast? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time when you went in before God and you couldn't even look up? You were so captured by the, 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 the sin that God had revealed in you and, and you were so broken in his presence And that's what I always say about my life uh, when it was characterized more by self-righteousness than humility, more by pharisaism than tax collectors repenting, is I didn't really repent that much. I I enjoyed being right, and I wanted you to know I was right, and I was righter than all of you. And one of the things that threatened me most was if somebody proved I was wrong. And one of the things that also threatened me a lot as a Pharisee and as a self-righteous person was not having an answer to all the questions that everybody would ask me. Because I thought I had to know. And I thought since I did know, maybe I was a little higher up the ladder than you. Maybe I was a little further down the road than you. But God hates that stuff. And so... In the flow of redemptive history we have seen this legal temper. Uh, Sometimes it manifests itself in our service of God. Sometimes other people with lesser gifts, shorter experience, poor preparation, are given positions in the church and we are passed over and then we're irked about it. Do you know what that is? That's legalism. Because you think I deserve that position. I should have that. If justice was done, if things were right, that should be me doing that. I can remember one time when I was up for a pretty prestigious position in the PCA in a pretty prestigious church, and I didn't get picked, and another guy got picked, and he was a guy I went to seminary with, and I remember going home and looking at my wife and saying, how in the world can they justify that? He must have really good politics on his side. Little did I know that, that was the, that's the essence of legalism. It's the essence of pride. The essence of a heart that is away from God. There needs to be some sort of revival in that person. Um, And so, at least a recognition of it. Every form of jealousy, all coveting for oneself of what God has given to others, all seeing God's distribution of gifts as related to performance rather than his fatherly pleasure and enjoyment, is infected with the legal spirit. At the end of the day, it means any sense of personal identity and worth has become entwined with performance and its recognition rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ and his demerited grace. This too is a subtle form of legalism. It emerges from my soul as though God's grace to others drew it out of me like a powerful magnet. Grace lances the boil of merit in our soul. We want to live in a meritocracy in church. No, you don't. I have spent... (laughs) None of us would be in very good shape with that. I have spent almost my entire ministry here in, in Las Vegas since I came back in 2004 with a passionate drive to see a church created here that has a culture of the gospel, a culture of grace. A preaching, a a temper, a spirit, an identifiable mark, that when you walk through those doors, this is a different kind of place because this is a place that truly believes the gospel. Now do we do that perfectly? No, because I'm here, and I'm not perfect, but I want it, and I've seen the alternatives. And they are ugly. Where do you think all the fights and conflicts in churches occur? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the flesh. It comes from the legalistic side of our flesh. Where people, Christians, can't get along. Where they're constantly at odds with another. They're carping. They're biting. They're committing what uh, many call Paul's uh, estimate of the church at Galatia. He said, you're biting. You're devouring one another. It's called Christian cannibalism. Where is all your joy? Where is all your joy in the free grace of God? Where has that gone? And so there's so many nuances that legalism possesses. And if it wasn't for time, I'd tell you about a lot of them. But there is something in the Bible, and this is how I see it manifest itself in the church. There is something in the Bible in Romans chapter 14 called the adiaphora. That's Greek, and it means disputable matters, Romans 14, where the church at Rome was having struggles. We'll get to that in our preaching. It's a long way away. We will eventually get there if we live and do well. Jesus doesn't come back, all of that. And I, and I don't die, or somebody else doesn't pick it up. But, it's a lot of ifs, isn't it? Uh, what was I talking about? The Adiaphora. And those are called disputable things. It had to do with things like eating meat. It had to do with things like observing the Sabbath. It had to do with things like drinking wine. It had to do with things like Christian liberty. And how we can restrict our liberty at times out of love for people who do not share the same convictions. But here's the trouble with Romans 14 that I see often repeated in the church. And it's this. People take personal convictions, that is, matters that are legitimately disputable. Matters in which God's Word does not say, do it or don't do it. Thou shalt or thou shalt not. And there's a, there's a sizable area of, of a territory where we're left to make decisions. We are never to have our conscience bound by anyone else. The Lord is the Lord of our conscience. If I had time, I would read for you chapter 20 out of the Westminster Confession, paragraph 2, where he talks about the Lord is our only Lord of our conscience. You can't force me to adopt your personal convictions. But here's what happens in the legalism of Christian communities. We adopt a position on those matters and other matters. And we tell people, That unless you think like I think, unless you believe what I believe, and unless you do what I do, then and then I will have fellowship with you. And we wall ourselves off from people who have different convictions than we do. We think our convictions are absolutes, but they're personal absolutes for you. And you have no right to bind anyone's conscience on those matters. But legalists do it daily. There was a teaching elder in the PCA who decided that no one could be an elder in his church if they sent their kids to public school. And I I would call that conscience binding. I have an opinion about that, and I may disagree with others on that opinion, but he literally said you cannot be an elder. Where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say a lot of things that people are willing to completely uh, adopt as sacrosanct? No, they're your convictions. You have a right to do that before God. You can make your decision based upon that. But you cannot bind another person's conscience by it. You cannot do it. That's the height of legalism. And so, I can remember uh, one of the things I loved about my wife before I married her. I went to this great big Baptist church, and it was a church in which women could not wear pants. Well, what did they wear? (laughs) What always struck me about these legalistic churches that I've been a part of is they always got stuff oppressing women, but they don't touch the men, do they? Men never have to do nothing. It's always the women that have to do stuff. And so... I didn't know her that well. I'd met her at Bible study. I thought she was drop-dead gorgeous. I was hoping someday I'd be able to find my way to her. But she comes into my church one Sunday night wearing pants. And she knew, didn't you know, she knew that church was that way. I remember looking at her and thinking to myself, I got to get to know that girl. And by God's grace, I have gotten to know. But there's, there's a loss of freedom. Where is the freedom? And legalism is just a thief. It's a distortion. It is a total devaluing of the freedom we have in, in the gospel. It guts our freedom. So what's the cure for? Well, I bet you can tell me without... Me even saying, what's the cure for everything? The gospel. The gospel is the only cure for legalism. Which is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Why we need to say that the reason I have any righteousness at all in my life is because it's a gift. And that will change the way you see other people and relate to other people. I mean, I could find something wrong with every one of you in three minutes of conversation and condemn you to hell forever, if I wanted to. How hard is that? It's not hard at all. But what about a heart that loves? One of the major marks of legalism that I've been around is there's a lot of talk about the law, but very little love. And I thought love was the fulfilling of the law, right? Isn't that right? But I've never met too many uh, legalists who were into love that much. They were rather into fault-finding. I'm better than you because you're worse than me. Therefore, I'm more righteous than you. Therefore, God must like me better than you. You need to lose that if that's your attitude. You need to lose it. You need to repent of it. You need to repent of your legalistic ways. I repent of mine all the time. When the Holy Spirit uncovers them, I am constantly going to the Lord and say, I'm such a legalist, how could you possibly love me? Which is what a legalist would say, right? I think sometimes God just laughs and says, you think I love you? Because you're trying harder. You believe in avious theology, just try harder. You believe in Nike, just do it. You think that's why I love you? I love you because I love you. There is no reason that can be found in your being as to why I should love you, ought to love you, or even do love you. But I love you because I love you, and I set my love on you from the foundation of the earth, and I have called you to belong to me, and that's why I love you, because I love you. But we need to repent, repent, repent of our legalism. I'd say that about the best person here. I would. The trouble is we don't see it. We can see it in everybody else. But unless you have a wife you go home to and you say to her, if there's one thing you could change, you know what, I did that 25 years ago, I ain't doing it again. (laughs) I love all of you and I want the best for you as your pastor. But I want to see you delivered from that legal spirit, and I want you to have joy in your relationship with God. And 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 the things that we fight about in church are just utterly ridiculous. Often. Now, fighting about doctrinal purity, I'm all with you on that one. But fighting about our personal convictions and looking at people as lesser because they don't hold my convictions. God help us. God deliver us. It's only through the gospel, only through realizing that the only righteousness I have ever had or ever will have that amounts to anything. Paul said it this way. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What does that mean? Well, let's substitute these words. For in Christ Jesus, neither morality nor immorality count. The only thing that matters is a self-abandoning, self-renouncing, looking outside of yourself faith that lays hold of Christ and shows its reality by expressing itself in love, the kind of love God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we're no longer under the law as a covenant of works, but we're now under the Spirit, married to Christ, with a new power at work in us. And we pray for ourselves, that you would show us that legal temper that we have that gets in the way of so much. And it's just so much fun to gather around and congratulate ourselves on how right we are and how wrong everybody else is. And that is anathema. That is a stench in your nostrils. Forgive us for being that way and thinking that way and acting that way in your church. So, Father, we do pray. As we continue to worship you today, we will give as people who know what joy is, who understand that the route to joy is always through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, bless our offering. In Jesus' name, amen.